Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. This is a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu. I've been saying that for so many episodes, but this time, friends, this episode is about Call of Cthulhu. Well, it's about the Call of Cthulhu. Ah! The important edition, the. It's about the Call of Cthulhu, as in the Lovecraft story. But before we bring down doom upon ourselves, what is happening? So the any nominations have been announced and voting is open now. Yeah, and we're delighted to say that there are a few books that uh, we've been involved with that are actually up for nominations. There's Pulp Cthulhu for Best Supplement. And the Keeper Screen Pack for Best Aid slash Accessory and Best Cartography. The, uh, the Things We Leave Behind, which is up for Best Adventure and Best Electronic Book. The Call of Cthulhu Investigator Handbook for Best Cover. And Call of Cthulhu, the 7th edition slipcase set for Best Production Values. If you haven't voted already and you feel moved to do so for any of these products, we would uh, be absolutely delighted. Unfortunately, if any of these things do actually win, we won't be at Gen Con to actually uh, accept any awards. No, indeed. We'll be in Providence at the Necronomicon Convention. Yeah, this is happening uh, on the 17th to the 20th of August uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, as Paul just mentioned. Uh, and, yeah, we'll be there doing a number of things. Uh, mostly, I think, milling around being fanboys. But uh, There are a lot of good seminars taking place there that I want to get in on, and also a lot of games that are going to be on offer, I think. Yeah. Including but, some run by ourselves. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you're running a few uh, games yourself, aren't you, Matt? Yeah, three full slots and a uh, one, of the, one of the things that we'll mention in a minute, a uh, very short slot of something. Yeah, uh, but we're also doing a few panels. I mean, between us, uh, we're covering, what is it, four panels? Yep, so there's the Pulp versus Pure Cthulhu Gaming on Friday. That's an early one, Friday at 9am. They're, they're expecting people to get up at that early o'clock. I know. I'm counting on jet lag working for me there. <laughs> uh, yeah, then we're doing campaigns in Call of Cthulhu on Saturday morning. Oh, yeah, they, there's a lot of morning stuff. At nine o'clock again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, they hate us, don't they? <laughs> then at a more sensible and reasonable hour on Saturday from 12 till 20 past one, the Miskatonic University podcast and the good friends of Jackson Elias together live. Well, I hope we're going to be live. Yeah, this is going to be the real thing here. So we're meeting up with our friends from uh, the Miss Clonic University podcast. There's going to be a room full of us, and that's just the podcasters, <laughs> talking about what makes your game Lovecraftian. Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to that one. I mean, not just because I think it's going to be an interesting topic to talk about, but because... Um, after having been on the Miskatonic University podcast a couple of times, after having played in games with a number of the MU people, I'm actually going to finally get to meet them face to face. And then another one about Call of Cthulhu favourite scenarios on Sunday at that brilliant time of nine o'clock in the morning <laughs> once more. Uh, aye, 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 aye. And we are planning to record uh, what seminars we can there. So, uh, well, and obviously the Miskatonic University one, uh, the crossover episode with us, we will be putting that out. And uh, I hope we can record all of the others and put those out as special episodes. 
And as Matt mentioned earlier, um, we've signed up to do a few slots of... Um, how would you describe it, Matt? Kill the players! I mean, characters! <laughs> Pretty much, it's just a meat grinder, but it's fun. <laughs> so this is a charity game that's been done for the Extra Life charity. Uh, it's a Call of Cthulhu... Um, I. Well, it's sort of an ongoing meat grinder of a game where they're drafting in multiple keepers. They've got lots and lots of pre-generated investigators on offer. And you basically go in there and die as spectacularly as possible. <laughs> that sounds like every game of Call of Cthulhu I've ever run to me. But yeah, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Yeah, so if you are coming along to Necronomicon, then please do make yourselves known to us. We'd, be, we'd love to meet any of, uh, any of the people we've corresponded with and listeners and so on. Uh, be great to see you there. Well, enough of that. What's it time for now? It's time, I suppose, for the Lovecraftian word of the uh, week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word has sparked a little bit of debate. Well, at least surprise on my part, because I swear it was bass relief, but apparently it's bar relief. <laughs> bass is a kind of... Fish! No, wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we got it! Anyway, it's a noun. One, relief sculpture, in which the figures project slightly from the background. Also called a low relief. Yeah, this wasn't a word that I'd encountered before I read Lovecraft, but it occurred to me that with your background in pottery, Paul, you probably had encountered bas-relief at some stage. Do you know why I hadn't done pottery when I first read Lovecraft? Oh, yes, of course you hadn't, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know why I come across it in art, though, but, mm. um, yeah, yeah. So it's basically one of those sculptures that we might see, particularly on a wall. It's not a full sculpture, but it's a partial sculpture. So, as Matt just described, there are bits kind of standing out from the... From the wall so it's like a picture a slightly 3d um, image and so for example i think when we did our episode on dagon a few episodes back uh we put some pictures up on the website of bar reliefs of, of dagon the philistine god from the time and i think because i first encountered this word in lovecraft it feels characteristically lovecraftian to me part of that is because it's got that sense of perhaps antiquity or that that sort of bridge between artistic expression and maybe architecture in that it could be an architectural feature oh very much so yeah that yeah, yeah it feels very lovecraftian to me as a as a count here we see it 24 times in lovecraft fiction mostly in call of cthulhu dream quest for unknown kadath and most notably to me at the mountains of madness where yeah. the, the the whole a lot of the story or the the backstory is kind of revealed through the narrator's looking at these bas-relief yes and i think because of the the use of bas-reliefs to express uh well certainly the narrative in at the mountains of madness but also you know the the, the first introduction to the idea of cthulhu and the call of cthulhu that they've become a form of conveying information or you know foreshadowing or or, or just dropping little hints that i've seen in a number of call of cthulhu games uh and, yeah, again, I think that just, for me, reinforces why they are such a Lovecraftian thing. Now let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word bas-relief in his writings. From the Call of Cthulhu. 
awe at the unbelievable size of the greenish stone blocks, at the dizzying height of the great carven monolith, and the stupefying identity of the colossal statues and bas-reliefs with the queer image found in the shrine on the alert is poignantly visible in every line of the mate's frightened description. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. For the onyx terraces and colonnaded walks, the gay parterres and delicate flowering trees, espaliered to golden lattices, the brazen urns and tripods with cunning bas-reliefs, the pedestaled and almost breathing statues of veined black marble, the basalt-bottomed lagoons and tiled fountains with luminous fish, the tiny temples of iridescent singing birds atop carven columns, the marvellous scrollwork of the great bronze gates, and the blossoming vines trained along every inch of the polished walls, all joined to form a site whose loveliness was beyond reality, and half-fabulous even in the land of dream. And from At the Mountains of Madness. The tops of the buildings which in the actual city around us had of course been weathered into shapeless ruins ages ago, were clearly displayed in the bas-reliefs, and showed vast clusters of needle-like spires, delicate finials on certain cone and pyramid apexes, and tiers of thin, horizontal scalloped discs capping cylindrical shafts. And now on to our main topic, the Call of Cthulhu. Well, as we said at the top of the show, this is the big one. I, I don't know that it's necessarily Lovecraft's best story, but I'd say it's his best known one, or at least the one that's going to have the most name recognition. I think largely because of the game, right? Yeah. And because Cthulhu himself has become a figure in pop culture, so his name's in the title. Yeah, and people talk about the Cthulhu mythos, which, you know, admittedly, Derleth named and not Lovecraft, but uh, yes, yeah, if you think of Lovecraft, if you think of the mythos, you think of Cthulhu. And um, giant plushies. No, 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 we don't, Matt. No, we fucking don't. And this is where Cthulhu first appears, right? Although this is the only actual appearance of Cthulhu, I, he obviously is referenced a number of times in Lovecraft's later work, uh, particularly, you know, The Whisper in Darkness, uh, At the Mountains of Madness, uh, The Shadow of Rinsmith. The story itself was written in the summer of 1926, and Lovecraft did try to submit it to Weird Tales uh, pretty soon after finishing it, and Farnsworth Wright rejected it. Yay! Have a sod. Uh, so he shopped it around a few other places, and then a couple of years later, uh, Farnsworth Wright did actually, you know, get back in contact with him and said, "Oh, actually, no. Can you send it to me again?" And published it, uh, and that was in uh, 1928 in February. He saw sense. Yeah, but it's it's kind of bizarre to think about it, isn't it? This iconic tale, this you know, the, the, the story that for so many people defines Lovecraft, was initially rejected. Yeah, I think it's interesting to note Lovecraft had just come back from New York at this stage. And then he comes back and he's jubilant at returning to his hometown of Providence. And he's filled with a, a great enthusiasm for writing. And at this stage, he writes a lot of his, his great works. And, and the first one being The Call of Cthulhu here. This is where really what we consider to be the core mythos uh, stories, this is where they begin. 
And this story is very much like a reworking of an earlier story, story that we talked about, Dagon, mm. in which an island rises up from the sea. There's a strange creature there. Uh, there's, there's stone carvings and monoliths and so on. And, you know, when we read that one, I was really taken with how much it foreshadowed things that would come. And, you know, this is that thing. And on to part one of our synopsis, the horror in clay. So the first thing we learn is that the story is found among the papers of the late Francis Wayland Thurston of Boston. And of course, at this point, we have no idea who Thurston is, but he's, he's our narrator. I think the fact that he's dead, we learn that in the first line, but... You know, then you read the rest of the story, and I tend to forget what you know that 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 first little bit was. It's only when I come to read it again, or I get to the end, and I'm like, oh, okay, this has quite significance to the story here. Absolutely, yeah. And we jump on from there to a quotation from uh, the Centaur by Elgin and Blackwood, and we actually have a recording of this little bit read by none other than Sandy Peterson himself. Of such great powers or beings, there may be conceivably a survival, a survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps, in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity, forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. Algernon Blackwood then we open up with the first section, The Horror in Clay. I, the Call of Cthulhu is divided into these three sections, each of which tells a, a, a discrete part of the narrative. And the structure is really, really unusual in this respect. Uh, it, it's not just like three chapters of a longer story. No, we have the narrator looking at somebody else's story, who's looking at somebody else's story. So there, there are layers within it. And, and I think one has to be careful to kind of keep track of what I'm actually, the, where this information is coming from. It is quite a lot like I've picked up a handout in the Call of Cthulhu game and I'm reading this handout. But actually this handout is written by an investigator who was himself researching something. You know, it's, it's got that kind of layered feel to it. I was when I've read this several times now I've always thought of almost like reading three short stories in one but because they are so separate but ultimately culminate in the same story overall and it totally reinforces that bit in the opening passage about correlating the contents about yeah. putting all this stuff together which is exactly what Thursday our narrator has has done and that opening passage, I think, is one of the most iconic bits of writing in Lovecraft. That whole idea that knowledge will fundamentally destroy us because the universe is such a hostile and alien place that the human mind is not capable of absorbing all this knowledge, of piecing everything together, and actually getting through the process intact. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents we live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in their own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein 
that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Thank you to Mike Mason for today's readings. There's an observation made by David Schultz, another author, who talks about the mythology that Lovecraft uses and it being more of an anti-mythology, mm. that mythologies usually are there as a vehicle for humans. I mean, mythologies being human creations to kind of explain and find our own place in the universe, a place for humanity and how it kind of, you know, how we, how we link in some way. But this puts us, it doesn't help us at all. No, it reminds us how futile everything is, how insignificant we are. And, and how we have yeah, no place in it, really. Exactly, yeah. That the important stories are not our stories. I've wondered why, and we'll talk to Sandy Peterson about this in, in an interview later, I've wondered why, you know, we have the, the game name Call of Cthulhu. But, I mean, that encapsulates it, doesn't it? It's about trying to put together the information but that very process will drive us mad. And that is at the heart of the Call of Cthulhu game. And that by learning said knowledge, as we'll discover as we get later into the story, um, that there are forces that will then suddenly appear in opposition to you. Yep. Mm. For a long time, the story of the Call of Cthulhu was actually in the game Call of Cthulhu. It was presented as an example of Lovecraft's work. And I think it's actually quite a good one in that respect, because this device, which we're about to drill into in a bit more, is the narrator getting this box of effectively handouts and piecing them all together, making sense of them, and then extending that and conducting his own investigation. And fundamentally, that is almost the template for the archetypal Call of Cthulhu scenario. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that story is no longer in the core rulebook, but that was back at a time when the internet wasn't so ubiquitous. But now, you know, if you want the story, you can find this story or any of Lovecraft's stories easily online. Just Google it and you can go directly to it. There's the text. You can read it. And if you go on to YouTube, you can probably find people doing readings of it. Our narrator, Thursden, his uncle has passed away under... You know, suspicious circumstances we'll touch on in a moment. His great uncle. Well, we talked about names in a previous episode as well and how they can have a, a resonance and a meaning. And this guy's name is Angel. I'm not sure there's any Judeo-Christian reference to angels here, but it just seems... Wasn't uh, wasn't it Angel Street that he lived on? Yeah, yeah yes. so Lovecraft lived on Angel Street, but but the very na the use yeah. of the name Angel seems very evocative. Yeah, he's just, just doing what I did. That whenever I used to um, hunt for a character name, I'd turn around and have a look at my big wall of paperbacks, take the first name from one author and the surname from another. He just looked outside and saw the street name. <laughs> yeah, well, isn't that how we in Fleming got James Bond? Uh, he stole it wholesale from a uh, from a book on butterflies from him. Uh, right? it, it yeah. was it was on birds. Ah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the name of an ornithologist. <laughs> and so in Matt's game, we meet J.R.R. King again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he gets this box, this wooden box, and opening it up it is like a Call of Cthulhu investigator's dream. And therein lie all these notes and and so on. And Indeed, you can buy one of these boxes, an emulation of this very box from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. I've never actually seen one in the flesh, but I would love to. I mean, having seen other stuff done by the HPLHS, their dedication to quality and authenticity is unsurpassed. 
But this box is absolutely fascinating because it contains newspaper clippings and uh, this manuscript that Professor Angel has put together, but it also contains this object, this artefact, this bas-relief sculpture. Yeah, so there's this strange bas-relief sculpture. It reminds him simultaneously of an octopus, a dragon, a human caricature, a pulpy tentacled head surmounted a grotesque and scaly body with rudimentary wings. This is a curious object and one that is very open to interpretation of just how it might look, except for the fact, perhaps, that Lovecraft supplies us with a drawing of it later. Mm. Lovecraft's not really much of an illustrator, but he, you know, he's not averse to doing some sketches and he's, he's done a few and there is one of this very thing. Actually, of the of the later model, I think, but it portrays yeah. uh, Cthulhu sat upon a little obelisk. Something we omitted to say was just how Professor Angel, our narrator's great uncle, died mysteriously in the winter of 2627 after being jostled by a nautical-looking Negro. Does that mean that he just had a anchor tattoo or he had a portal for one eye? What is a nautical-looking A parrot individual? on his shoulder? I don't know. You're dressed like a sailor. I I don't know. <laughs> Seaweed in his hair. Big staring eyes. Out of all the words that Lovecraft uses to describe certain racial groups, this for the time was probably the most neutral. You know, it is is a word that obviously has you know developed different connotations since Lovecraft's time. But yeah, you know, this is Lovecraft not trying to be too racist at this stage. You know, for him. But you know, as we'll come across, there are other terms that he uses later in the uh, the story that are perhaps. Even more toe-curling. I feel like I'm playing some kind of like racist bingo with this this story. Because oh, there are so yeah. many there are so many words in there that actually I haven't really encountered in other places or or only touched upon that I don't actually know if they are overtly objectionable or yeah. if they're just acceptable. So we've got Eskimo, Mestizo, Mulatto, Kankakus. We've got a whole bunch of words which yeah, and, and almost every single one is considered offensive these days. In I think fact, so. In fact, I think out of that entire list, yeah, every one is considered derogatory these days. Uh, now, yeah, at the time as Lovecraft was writing it, that probably wasn't the case so much as it is now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, that said, I mean, there's still plenty of other language that he uses in there where he describes mixed-race people as mongrels, uh, degenerate. This is quite an uncomfortable story to go back to in that respect and we'll touch upon this more at the time i think when we get into the the swamps in louisiana oh god yes even then though thurston doesn't seem absolutely convinced at this stage that professor angel's death was unnatural i mean this is just the detail that he's thrown in but it, it will acquire more importance as the story goes on so looking through these papers they recount his uncle's work back in 1925 when a young man by the name of Henry Anthony Wilcox of Providence, Rhode Island, comes to see his uncle bearing a bas-relief that he has made the very night before. The clay of that he's made it of is still soft. He shows it to Professor Angel 
and declares that he made it the very night before in his sleep, in dreams. Despite the fact that this looks like an ancient artefact, yeah, it's, it's just the fact that the clay's wet that gives it away. And apparently this was inspired by a dream that Lovecraft had had, where, uh, wherein he had created this, this bas-relief himself, and had gone off to a museum to show it to someone there, and was told that it resembled this ancient artefact. And him being very, very disturbed that you know this this uh, museum curator or, or whoever it was had had gone back and actually found this item and showed it to him, and you know that, that he had dreamt this same thing that was there's a pre-human artifact. What did this mean? And it impressed him so much that he actually put an entry in his commonplace book that you know he must write something about this, and this you know obviously then led into the Call of Cthulhu. But it really strikes me reading the before I found out about that dream. It really struck me reading this again that Wilcox is an analog of Lovecraft himself. Yeah, because Wilcox, it's unusual that we get so much personal description of him. We learn that he's psychically hypersensitive. He doesn't mingle very much. He's got nervous speech. And he draws quite a lot on nocturnal imagery of dreams, which is something Lovecraft also did, as we as we as we just discussed. Well, it's not just that, but his dreams seem to be unusually vivid and lifelike. They consume him in a way that Lovecraft seemed to be consumed and dominated by his dreams. But it was this one thing that really tipped me over and convinced me: the fact that Wilcox has dropped from social visibility and is known only to a small group of aesthetes from other towns. Very much his writer's circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is exactly what Lovecraft was. He very much viewed himself as of a, of a nervous disposition, um, you know, not very physically well and didn't really socialise very much, but did have a close group of friends from other, you know, surrounding towns. Wilcox tells Angel that he was inspired to create this bas-relief by this latest bout of dreams. This this dream that he had of a great cyclopean city, or great cyclopean cities rather, of titan blocks and sky-flung monoliths, all dripping with green ooze and sinister with latent horror. These dreams, as well as having this visual component, he talks about there being this sound, the you know, building in the background, these these strange noises which sound like language. And the the impression that he comes away with at the end is these words that, that make no sense to him, uh, these words Cthulhu Fatagan. Upon retiring... He had had an unprecedented dream of great cyclopean cities of titan blocks and sky-flung monoliths, all dripping with green ooze and sinister with latent horror. Hieroglyphics had covered the walls and pillars, and from some undetermined point below had come a voice that was not a voice, a chaotic sensation which only fancy could transmute into sound, but which he attempted to render by the almost unpronounceable jumble of letters. Cthulhu! Wilcox's dreams began on March the 1st, 1925. And this is around the same time there was an earthquake. And this was a real earthquake, uh, apparently. Mm. Um, So this earthquake, the dates of it also tie up with the latter sections of this story. And Wilcox's problems escalate. After this initial dream that prompts him to create the bar relief 
his his dreams get more and more powerful and he falls into this delirium this fever that no one can break him out of where he's babbling uh, babbling about this thing this this gigantic thing miles high walking and lumbering around and this goes on for a couple of weeks. He falls into the delirium on the 23rd of March and it goes on until the 2nd of April, where he suddenly just recovers. Not only just recovers, but he can't remember that period. He can't remember those strange dreams. Much the benefit of his sand score, no doubt. And Wilcox was not alone in this. Angel finds that there were a number of other aesthetes uh, who had very similar dreams uh, or at least experiences during the same time uh, that there was this almost like contagion of madness going around and this is a real call of cthulhu investigator scene now where he goes around cutting agencies which were which were actual things at the time they would mm. go through newspapers and look for cuttings for you that related to what you were researching the kind of like Google search of the time, I guess. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. It's like instead of a computer, you've got a you've got desks full of people going through cuttings. I, yeah, I think cutting agencies still exist. Um, right, you get more specialised ones now as well, which deal with video and and uh, so I think uh, you know I, I remember encountering them in. Uh, sorry, this is getting off topic, but the Daily Show, for example, when they get lots of uh, clips of of people saying inadvisable things during interviews and so on, they use the equivalent of cutting agencies there who go around and do that just by scanning lots of television uh so yeah they, they never really went away it's not something i've ever really made use of in a game though i've always had you know the, the investigators would go to the library and look through the newspapers and and so yeah. on but i've not really thought of using cutting agencies yeah you could actually effectively then use credit rating as your investigative skill because you outsource it <laughs> and we're using the word cuttings here but i think in the american it's clippings Lovecraft favoured the, the British use of language and used the word cuttings as we would. And these cuttings that Professor Angel gathered uh, include cases from all across the world. Uh, so, for example, a nocturnal suicide in London where a lone sleeper had leaped from a window after a shocking cry. A Californian theosophist colony dons white robes en masse for some glorious fulfilment which never arrives. This sounds very much akin to kind of Heaven's Gate, kind of a, you know, a cult that... And, well, there, there again, we've got, you know, Cthulhu cults and so on. And we'll come back to the theosophy. Voodoo orgies multiply in Haiti. I like the fact there's loads of them going on already. They just multiply in that time. <laughs> well, I mean, voodoo is a real religion in Haiti. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obviously, you know, the use of the word orgies there is a bit pejorative. But... Um, yeah, out of all the things, that's actually probably the least newsworthy one. <laughs> then, New York policemen are mobbed by hysterical Levantines. And then he talks about painters. A painter named Edouard Bonneau hangs a blasphemous dream landscape in the Paris Spring Salon exhibition of 1926. So this sort of ties in with the Surrealist movement, which was just taking off around then, or birthing around then. Yeah, and Lovecraft references the kind of futurism and cubism and the art movements, which are relatively contemporary at that time. Throughout this, this whole story, really, is, I think that the whole Cthulhu thing very much, you know, he's telling us it affects those of sensitive minds, like authors and artists and so on. But also, this is something that, yeah, I mean, we talked about on previous episodes, but it's the fact that... You know, particularly playing Call of Cthulhu, we tend to see it as a period game. 
we look back at all these references and, oh, obviously, oh, this is historical and so on. But no, you know, Lovecraft was taking his inspiration out of current events, out of the mm. news. He was going to news sources about these, uh, this earthquake that had gone on. He was taking inspiration from the art movements of the time. If we're creating our own Call of Cthulhu material, we you know, are perfectly free to do exactly the same for the modern day. It is not just the 1920s thing. And then there's this whole wave of recorded troubles in insane asylums that only a miracle can have stopped the medical fraternity from noting strange parallelisms and drawing mystified conclusions. One thing we sort of skipped over is that this main paper uh, that Thurston finds that Professor Angel wrote is divided into two sections. So the first one is talking about uh, Henry Wilcox. Um, and his strange bar relief and his dreams and so on. But there is a second one there as well, uh, which is the uh, the narrative of Inspector John R. Lagrasse of New Orleans. But in amongst all that, there's also all sorts of brief notes. Accounts of the queer dreams of, of different persons, uh, some of them citations from theosophical books and magazines. All sorts of other comments about secret societies and hidden cults. And you touched very briefly on theosophy before, Paul. Theosophy kind of came about in the 19th century with uh, Madame Helena Blavatsky. And it was a big thing at the time. She claims to have drawn her knowledge from people from, you know, mystics from Tibet. Um, these, these undying uh, mystics that live in Tibet that have given her the knowledge and they send it to her in dreams and sort of manuscripts that manifest... She was debunked by the SPR. The uh, Society for Psychical Research. Yep, based in London. Uh, still still around today, a real thing. But the, the whole Theosophical Society, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a massive thing at the time. And I think largely perhaps forgotten now, just, just its in, breadth of influence. So it talks about lost lands of, of Lemuria and Atlantis, and I think Mu as well. And various stages of mankind, I, if memory serves me right, I think we're the fifth stage. And there are these various stages. There were the Atlanteans, which was one stage. There was very various prehistoric phases. And then there are phases to come. And one of these um, groups will manifest, apparently, in California. So these guys in white robes, you know, that, that's they're perhaps trying to, you know, bring that about. And it had... I mean, I think it would we would could do a whole show about the Theosophical Society okay. and their effect on art. There were there were artists. One of the first abstract artists was a woman, um, I think, Scandinavia or East European somewhere, um, who you know is is before abstraction abstract art was really a thing. She was doing it, but based on you know Theosophical works. And it's something we've actually looked into a bit recently for a different project. Uh, There's a a game we've talked about that we're writing called The Poison Tree. And there are strands of theosophy that run through certain parts of that. So it's actually something we've done a bit of research on recently. So, yeah, I think um, doing an episode on that may be quite interesting. But particularly for The Call of Cthulhu, as you mentioned in passing, there's this idea of lost continents, uh, of, you know, Atlantis and Lemuria, these places that fell beneath the waves. And I can't help thinking that, like, Robert E. Howard and uh, Lovecraft and so on, well, certainly Lovecraft was 
you know influenced by theosophy but this must have fired the imagination of so many authors around that time right and particularly in this story because really is another lost continent it's this island this city whatever you want to call it that has fallen beneath the waves and as we'll discover later on has risen up again but we touched upon inspector lagrasse there uh, very briefly so i think it's time for us to move on to the next part of this story tale of Inspector Lagrasse. So Angel's notes in the now famous box record that the professor had heard the word Cthulhu and had seen its likeness before, some years ago. It is the kind of likeness that you would probably remember. Octopus, tentacle, bat, human. There's not many things that have that kind of combination. Hmm. Angel had encountered it because he'd attended, oh, back in 1908, this uh, meeting of the American Archaeological Society. Uh, In amongst all the usual academics, there was a police officer who had turned up, this aforementioned Inspector Lagrasse, and he had an unusual request to make. Uh, He had found this item, this statue, on a raid in the Louisiana Bayou, Uh, It was made of a strange greenish-black stone, and he knew the name associated with it, Cthulhu. And it resembles the figure that Professor Angel would later see in in Wilcox's bas-relief. He now recognises. The statue that he's brought with him is described fairly vividly in the text. The figure which was finally passed slowly from man to man for close and careful study, was between seven and eight inches in height and of an exquisitely artistic workmanship. It represented a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head and whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on hind and fore feet and long, narrow wings behind. This thing which seemed instinct with a fearsome and unnatural malignancy, was of a somewhat bloated corpulence, and squatted evilly on a rectangular block or pedestal covered with undecipherable characters. The tips of the wings touched the back edge of the block, the seat occupied the centre, whilst the long, curved claws of the doubled-up crouching hind legs gripped the front edge and extended a quarter of the way down towards the bottom of the pedestal. The cephalopod head was bent forward, so that the ends of the facial feelers brushed the backs of the huge forepaws, which clasped the croucher's elevated knees. The aspect of the hull was abnormally lifelike, and the more subtly fearful, because its source was so totally unknown. One of the things that strikes me as interesting about the statue, which we'll come to when we see it in context in a bit, is the fact that it's not actually very big. So then we get into how Lagrasse came to have this statue, this statuette. He gained it on a police raid taking place in the early 20th century. And he says they have two carriages filled with uh, cops or, or people that have been uh, deputised, I guess. Round up a posse. Yeah, it does seem, mm-hmm. sort of seem like that. And an automobile. 
so this is kind of really early stuff i think yeah. in the in the sort of around 19 1908 time and, and they'd gone into the bayou because there was a, a settlement of squatters there and people had basically just gone missing and uh, the police had decided to go and investigate this and had decided that there was a, a cult at the root of all this but i one of the things that i i, I especially love about the setup for all this is the description of the area this is something that until I reread the story uh, a couple of years ago, I'd forgotten completely. The raiders taken them into an ill-reputed area of the swamp that people just shun. And the reason for this is given uh, as such. There were legends of a hidden lake, unglimpsed by mortal sight, in which dwelt a huge, formless, white polypus thing with luminous eyes. And squatters whispered that bat-winged devils flew up out of the caverns in inner earth to worship it at midnight. It was nightmare itself, and to see it was to die. But it made men dream, and so they knew enough to keep away. Looking at this as Call of Cthulhu players, I, yeah, I have no idea what this white polypus thing is. It's not something I've seen personally explored in a Call of Cthulhu game. I'm sure someone I, has at I some stage. I think it is. Okay. But, um, mm. yeah, it, it's certainly not one of the canonical monsters. You've got these bat-winged devils which sound like uh, night gaunts. They do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But they fly up out of the inner earth, yeah. which... So there's... When you when you look at that, I mean, it's what is it over? A, is it one sentence or a couple of sentences? Man, there is so much in there. There's a hidden lake, unglimpsed by yeah. mortal sight. There's this white polypus thing with luminous eyes. There's there's bat winged devils. There's the inner earth. There's a the the place itself is is a nightmare. And to see it, you know, people die when they see it. I mean, I guess this is a, you know they're, they're exaggerating somewhat here, but also that it makes men dream and yeah. they know enough to stay away. I mean, man, there's, there's two or three scenarios right there. <laughs> exactly. And that, also that whole idea of it makes things dream, that then brings it back full circle to Cthulhu in his dreams. Yeah. That, you know, is this something that is somehow intrinsically linked? As, uh, you know, as the story goes on, we'll learn a bit more about the fact that Cthulhu is one of the great old ones, that, you know, the, these alien entities have come from the stars. And if the, one of the properties of Cthulhu as an entity is that he broadcasts his dreams or spreads his nightmares amongst human minds, then it sounds like this may be perhaps a lesser great old one that has just ended up in this lake. But whatever it is, it, you know, it's it, again beyond human understanding and absolutely terrifying. And yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I have actually ended up using this in a scenario for exactly that reason, just because it was so damned evocative. And one of the cops faints when he gets out at the horror of everything that's going on. And later on, Legrasse talks to one of the, the cops and gets an account of one of them kind of caught sight of this strange white polypus thing in, in, the, in the woods. Yeah, there's kind of a second or third hand account here, but yeah, it's there. You know, I really like the police at this era. They're, you do? Well, yeah, they're, they're actually they're caring about squatters out in the woods without saying we don't give a shit. You're out, um, you're sort of just hangers on on society. And the other one is he gets to take away evidence from the from the raid. Well, not only does he take away evidence, they round up a whole bunch of the celebrants at the at the cult orgy or whatever it is 
And they take away about, what is it, 47 of them? Yep, and kill another five in the process. But then when they try them, they find that only a couple of them are sane enough to be hanged. You know, there's a caring, sharing society right there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're insane, we'll just put you in asylum, it's fine. Building on what you said, Matt, you know, the number of things I see on Facebook about, you know, police conduct, I think they'd probably get away a lot worse today. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> we do get a description of what exactly is going on when the police go in. Only poetry on madness could do justice to the noises heard by Legrasse's men as they ploughed on through the black morass towards the red glare and the muffled tom-toms. There are vocal qualities peculiar to men and vocal qualities peculiar to beasts and it is terrible to hear one when the source should yield the other. Animal fury and orgiistic license here whip themselves into demonic heights of howls and squawking ecstasies that tore and reverberated through those nighted woods like pestilential tempests from the gulfs of hell. Now and then, the less organised ululation would cease, and from what seemed a well-drilled chorus of hoarse voices would rise in sing-song chant that hideous phrase or ritual... There are dead bodies hanging from the trees, right? Yeah. These people that have gone missing, that are accounted missing, are, you know, they've been, they've been slaughtered and eviscerated. It's this a pretty horrific scene. But then we get into, you know, some fairly, unfortunately, typical Lovecraft territory where he's sort of very quick to point out that almost no one involved, in fact, no one involved is white. Almost everyone is mixed race. And this seems to be somehow inherent in why they're behaving like this. And I, this is sort of a very uncomfortable thing in this story for me, which is, I, we see this over and over again, that when you get the influence of Cthulhu and his dreams and so on, you, you get it influencing, say, you know, someone like Wilcox, and he goes into a delirium and creates art. You get he makes a, a nice sculpture. Yeah, you get theosophists uh, in California, and they you know don white robes and you know carry white carry robes. out a ritual. It happens to people who aren't white, and they just go kill crazy and and you know become animalistic and degenerate and you know, uh, for fuck's sake, Howie, just for fuck's sake. It, it is probably the single send uh, the single passage I can think of where the word word mongrel is yeah. used more than any other time I can think of. Yeah, mongrel and degenerate, and yeah, would this aspect of the Call of Cthulhu? make it difficult for either of you to recommend it as an introduction to Lovecraft for new readers? I'm going to say no, but, yeah, it's probably just me. No, uh, I'd, I'd err on the side of no as well, because I think the rest of the story has enough meat and horror to it and colour and wider significance in terms of the mythos that I think that is enough to make it a recommendation for me. Yeah, and, and I do largely agree with you. I, I suppose what I'd do is I'd kind of warn people in advance. I think make the point this was written nearly 100 years ago. If this were written today, then, yeah, I think that would be a, a, a serious problem. But, you know, when you read things like, say, Heart of Darkness or whatever, we have to read them with a different eye to, to those things, I think. I guess so. I, and, yeah, no, I do actually agree with you. But... 
I mean, the counter-argument I always have to that is, you know, we, we talk about, you know, Lovecraft being of his time or these stories being of their time, but the point is the people who are reading them now are not of that time. What, whatever arguments you may want to put forward about people being oversensitive or too politically correct and so on, the fact is that, you know, stuff like this can actually hurt. And I think it's only fair to warn people about it. Now, of course, the raid takes place and I guess a lot of heads get busted and people get rounded up and put in the carriages and taken away. But a lot of the information here now comes from Legrasse when he talks and interviews the people that have been taken prisoner, particularly one by the name of Old Castro. Between talking to Old Castro and the other cultists there, he learns that... What they're worshipping, what they're doing all this uh, in glory of, is this idol which represents something that they call Great Cthulhu. They worshipped, so they said, the Great Old Ones, who had lived ages before there were any men, and who came to the young world out of the sky. Those Old Ones were gone now, inside the earth and under the sea, but their dead bodies had told their secrets in dreams to the first men, who'd formed a cult which had never died. This was that cult, and the prisoners said it had always existed and would always exist, hidden in the distant wastes and dark places all over the world, until the time when the great priest Cthulhu, from his dark house in the mighty city of Raleigh, under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. Some day he would call, when the stars were ready, and his secret cult would always be waiting to liberate him. And I think that's a really interesting thing there. It's just a throwaway bit, but the great priest Cthulhu. Mm. Now, we think of Cthulhu in the Cthulhu mythos, you know, possibly because it's got his name right there in the title, as being some kind of ultimate god. But no, in this, he's a priest. And we have to moderate these things somewhat by these are the interpretations of the, the you know Cthulhu's law by some what appear to be crazed cultists in a swamp. Well, yeah, and that's another really interesting point. I mean, th- we don't know how they got hold of the statue. We don't know what they really understand. I mean, this is things that they've picked up word of mouth. When we get round to talking to Old Castro, he obviously seems to know a reasonable amount. But one thing that struck me very much reading this is how little the cultists really know that you know they've got these these little impressions they know that there is this entity they know that this is his representation his idol castro knows that you know there are references in the necronomicon to you know that that great couplet you know that is not dead which can eternal lie and with strange eons even death may die well this is this is kind of mirrored in the games as well that you have a load of grunt level cultists that just run around with guns and knives that you you kill off and they don't seem to know anything, but you have this head honcho who has the little scraps more. 
Yeah, except in this case, I don't even see the head honcho there. I mean, he's got, you know, Castro's got scraps more, but he doesn't necessarily seem to be this Machiavellian organising figure. You know, he's not pursuing, you know, some larger agenda. I mean, yes, all right, they're performing these sacrifices and these rites in the hope that they, they'll raise the great old ones. But fundamentally, they're waiting until the stars are right. I mean, Cthulhu, yeah, pops up in this story, but that's because of an earthquake. It's not because of anything they're doing. What, what, what are they doing? Thinking of the head honchos, there is mention of these undying cult leaders in Tibet. Yeah, the, the, the deathless Chinamen, as they're described. And so, yes, yeah, the idea that there are perhaps these more clued-in people. But these, these folks running around in the swamp aren't those. They really don't necessarily know what they're doing. And I think, from a Call of Cthulhu perspective, I mean, that's quite an interesting thing, that when we portray cults in Call of Cthulhu... We quite often do so from the point of view of, oh, yeah, they are working towards this grand ritual which will bring back such and such. Or, obviously, they know all about the mythos and they're doing, you know, casting these great magics and, and doing this particular thing. This is, this is just a bunch of idiots running around stabbing people. Well, later on we learn kind of a foretelling uh, about what people will become when the old ones rise, that they'll become crazed and, and they'll run around and the great old ones will teach them new ways of killing and, and taking joy in all this. Yeah. And they seem almost like they're doing that already. And I think that reference to um, becoming degenerate is, is, is almost kind of reinforcing that, that they are almost what is to become of humanity, perhaps. That cult would never die until the stars came right again, and the secret priest would take great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects and resume his rule of the earth. The time would be easy to know, for then mankind would have become as the great old ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. Then... The liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves. And all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Well, except even then, can we actually believe any of that? Because this is the cult saying all that. This is this bunch of idiots who, you know, patently seem to understand nothing. Um, if, uh, you know, what we're picking up about the great old ones in Cthulhu is that they are so utterly alien and beyond our understanding. Why would they care about making us do all these things? Surely this is just us looking in the mirror they present, seeing our worst instincts and thinking, right, you know, uh, I, I don't understand any of this, so therefore you know, I, I, I'm free to do whatever I want. I, I don't necessarily buy that whole section. Misinformation. Yeah, or just misunderstanding. I mean, it's this whole cargo cult aspect of the mythos. It is humans attempting to make sense of and worship things that are beyond human comprehension. And Except it does seem to tie in. I mean, there's this reference to the, the, the human cults helping when the, when the time comes right, the stars come right, and yeah. the, the, the city of Relay rises up, that the humans will come to, to free Cthulhu from his tomb... You know, in our last section, that does seem to happen with the sailors. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose they sort of break the seal on that. Um, so it seems like there is a kind of a knowledge and a function for these people within the, um, you know, within the, the Cthulhu universe. Maybe, but again, you know, we're 
sort of inferring quite a lot there. I mean, we don't know necessarily that, you know, when the stars are right, Cthulhu wouldn't just walk out of his tomb himself. I think, you know, at the same time, we can just see this as humans trying to make themselves feel important in uh, a situation where they have absolutely no importance at all. But we get quite a lot of things from Castro about the Great Old Ones. He tells us that the Great Old Ones, these beings like Cthulhu, are composed not altogether of flesh and blood, mm. but of other, of other matter of some sort. And that when the stars are right, the Great Old Ones can plunge, and I like the word plunge, from world to world. But when the stars are wrong, the Great Old Ones could not live, but never really die. I mean... So they're, they're not really flesh and blood. They're not really physical, but they kind of are. They're kind of alive and dead. I mean, how are we supposed to grasp that? It's kind of beyond our... Exactly, it's beyond our comprehension, mm. right? Yeah. They play by an entirely different set of rules. Yeah. We can't even begin to understand. And again, I think from a Call of Cthulhu perspective, this is a really, really important thing because... I think it's very easy when playing the game and particularly writing scenarios to take a very reductive approach to these things. And it's just sort of, yes, of course, things work that way or, you know, what this really means is. Here we're seeing in the story, no, this is a massive self-contradictions that no one can ever make sense of. And there's a bunch of other stuff that Castro says, which is, is equally great, that we'll come back to when we talk about the gaming aspects of this story. One thing as well which kind of really interests me is... The pronunciation of Cthulhu. So we've got the standard pronunciation that we've come up with, which, I mean, Lovecraft in his letters, you know, talks about how, you know, this is a name that represents a human voice's uh, attempt to pronounce a name or a word that was never created with human vocal apparatus in mind. I've encountered lots of variant pronunciations of Cthulhu over the years. I had a friend years back who always referred to him as Tullu. I think Lovecraft, you know, in his letters, uh, kind of talked much more about it being a guttural or, you know, grating sound, sort of Cthulhu or something like like, like you're clearing your throat. Cthulhu I've heard as well. Yeah. Mm. That reinforces to me the whole alienness of this. Cthulhu has become such a part of our pop culture that, you know, it's, it's this name that we associate with the games and with fucking plush toys and stuff like that, Woo-hoo. that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of easy to forget that it's, it's almost supposed to be this affront upon language, this impossibility to say this, mm. you know, th- th- this barred, guttural, horrible sound. Plush. <laughs> now that makes me shudder <laughs> but there's another delegate at this archaeological conference an anthropologist from Tulane University by the name of William Channing Webb a professor who spent some time in Greenland on an expedition in 1860 so we're really going back here and he recognises some of the wording that, that our, uh, our police chief mentions in fact Webb describes a singular tribe or cult of degenerate Eskimo, whose religion, a curious form of devil worship, chilled him with its deliberate bloodthirstiness and repulsiveness. Webb said that the Greenland cult had both the same chant and similar hideous fetish. And so this is us seeing reinforced, I mean, even before we get back to the narrative that brought us here, 
the idea that this is something that is global. This isn't just um, you know, a group of people in the Louisiana Bayou who have come up with this strange folk religion. There is this this thing that crops up in disparate, unconnected societies. And not just the statue or the, the representation of Cthulhu, but also this phrase, which I'm not going to struggle to pronounce right now, but this curious string of syllables and Webb manages to recognise this string of words from what Legrasse recounts. And I, I find that fairly remarkable because it's such an, a strange, uh, incomprehensible string of uh, syllables that to remember it and to be able to recount it 40 years later seems pretty remarkable. But I guess he is a professor of anthropology <laughs> and maybe they can do that sort of thing. And also, we skipped over it, but Castro does actually translate what this phrase yeah, means. Yeah, indeed. And it translates to... In his house at Relay, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. And again, I mean, this is another thing that's just become part of pop culture and you know, everyone who's associated with the game or who has played it can quote it and so on. If you stop and think about that, that is a pretty kind of weird and chilling concept. Yeah, totally. Totally. He's dead. He's dreaming. And waiting. It's all in there. In a what? dozen words or so hmm. well, the fact he has a house he doesn't have a castle or he doesn't have a great big lair it's just a house mm. so yeah three, which three just makes semi it seem more yeah. mundane somehow but yeah. yeah and so we cut back to thurston you know going through his his uncle's documents and at this stage you know i i think he is completely hooked uh that yeah, you know, he's seen the pieces come together uh, the way that his uncle, or his great-uncle, saw the pieces come together. Um, and though, I mean, that said, you know, he's, he's still looking at this in a very detached academic way. He isn't emotionally connected with it. He isn't, um, he isn't necessarily a believer. I mean, this, well, this is like, you know, what you had in, in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. You know, he's got the Cthulhu mythos there, but he hasn't become a believer yet. Yeah, he's not, he's not really had anything to convince him yet, I don't think. And yeah, he's, he's looked through Angel's box of notes, his uncle's box, and he's gone to some cuttings agencies and got more stuff about what was going on at the time but for the most part we've just got him sat in a room looking through handouts right as a player character and this has been like over half the story over <laughs> half the game is just you looking at handouts okay make a roll i don't know that's not the most exciting <laughs> game but now he decides that he's going to leave his house and go around the corner and call on our old friend the artist Wilcox, and go visit him and see, you know, just what was the deal. So he goes around there and um, we get a, a classic bit of Lovecraft, really, that we get this description. Wilcox still lived alone in the fleur-de-lis building in Thomas Street. A hideous Victorian imitation of 17th century Breton architecture. <laughs> Outrageous! <laughs> yeah, that's the, never mind the, the, the monsters sleeping under the sea. Yeah. This is bad architecture. You, you, you just want brackets 1d3 slash 1d10. Yeah, <laughs> it would be. It's an affront to your artistic sensibility. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Lovecraft you know, it was, was very passionate about architecture and very emotionally moved by it. So, you know, this is this is clearly him, you know, venting about that. It is a real place. 
And, you know, you can look it up. There are illustrations of it. It's there in Providence. And it's a really nice-looking place, to my eyes, at least. <laughs> it's just funny to me that Lovecroft's so, like, outraged by... You passed your sand roll. Yeah. We'll have to visit it when, when we visit Providence next Scream. month. <laughs> 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 just not fall, in, uh, fall into its front door through an angle that's not meant to be there and disappear entirely. I'm just, I'm just going to take this quote with me and, and yell, you know, what a... What a hideous Victorian imitation of 17th century Breton architecture <laughs> from the other side of the street. I'm sure they're tired of people doing that. There's probably a plaque outside saying, yeah. please do not shout about the architecture. <laughs> we should record this and put it on the blog, I think. <laughs> Thurston is, is pretty well convinced at this stage that his, his great-uncle's death wasn't natural. Um, but yeah, as I said, his, his interest. Well, I think in he's raised his suspicions, hasn't yeah. it? It's, it's kind of he's starting to put all these pieces together, but now he's kind of run out of steam. I yeah. think he hasn't really got to the stage of conducting his own investigation, and he hasn't really at this stage got any reason to. But then, events change. In gaming terms, I think our narrator Thurston is about to make an idea roll. But that's what we'll get to in part three. Now we have a quick look at what things have been said on social media. Yeah, we've had a few responses to our previous episode, episode 108's uh, look at Mage the Awakening. Yeah, that was a bit of a departure for us to look more in depth at a White Wolf game. Yeah, we're curious to know if people want to hear more detail about other such games. And we've had David Larkins on our Google Plus community commenting. David says... Maybe something about the different iterations of Vampire, from First Ed Masquerade up through Second Ed Requiem, and perhaps even a brief discussion of early thoughts on the forthcoming new editions. Similarities, differences, Matt's preferred edition, if any. Hmm. You know, I've never really thought about the different editions of Masquerade. Uh, obviously, there are differences between them. Um, how Metaplot advances, how they treat the Sabbat, how they look at various uh, various different issues in the game. I never really thought of which one would be my favourite, so that's, a, that's mm. a hard one to tell. But yeah, maybe a sort of high-level overview of, of the evolution of Vampire across different editions. And mm. Personally, I think I'd be quite interested in something like that, because you know, the, the, there are so many different versions of Vampire that if I were a new Vampire player coming in to this, and I'd be, yeah, I've played very little Vampire, where would I start? What would I want to play? What are the options? Hmm. So, yeah, yeah, that's certainly something we could come back to in a later episode. I uh, Watch this space, or, or listen to it, or I smell it if you want. <laughs> I've got an interesting anecdote. Not Definitely not for on air. Um, <laughs> well, we, so, we'll say it while we're recording anyway. And also, building on the major episode, Linus Larson contacted us on Google+, Plus uh, with, I think, a fairly interesting observation. He said, I think the classic view of wizardry, as briefly mentioned in Word of the Week, informs of a foundation in horror rather than mere urban fantasy. And then skipping forward a bit, to summarise, the wizard is someone who refuses to acknowledge the rules of existence, who will pursue their own agenda, no matter the consequence for themselves and the people around them. The rules in question might be the scientific nature of the world or moral and cultural boundaries of the society that contains them. Yeah, I, I think 
that this is a really interesting approach. I mean, th this is part of a much, much longer post. So if you're interested in the subject, I mean, do go and take a look at that conversation. I mean, one thing that that really made me think of is uh, Ron Edwards' Game Sorcerer, which is um, fundamentally about magic and transgression. The fact that, you know, in order to make magical change you have to do thoroughly transgressive horrible things you have to break the rules of society and yeah i think i think this is possibly a really interesting topic for a future episode either seen through the lens of sorcerers the game or or you know the transgressive nature of magic it makes me think that in the previous episode when we talked about you know we were being making fairly light of it that when we think of wizards and we think of like gandalf or dumbledore but it makes me think you know i've talked before when I'm playing a Call of Cthulhu in a historic period and I get a sword, suddenly I feel like I'm playing D&D. &D. Or at least, you know, it's easy to accidentally fall into playing a D&D &D type game if it's in the Roman or Dark Ages era. Mm. And, you know, I think that's probably to be avoided unless you want to do that, but it's an easy trap to fall into. And I think when we play, you know, wizards or people with spells... Maybe we also, a bit of us kind of, you know, an easy trope to fall into in your head is almost, oh, I'm a bit like Gandalf. There's that kind of easy parallel, but, you know, equally that's something to be avoided. And also again on G+, Daniel Carroll says, One of the first Good Friends episodes I listened to was Relay Roulette, where you randomly picked a spell from Matt's spreadsheet and devised a scenario around it. As is pretty evident at this point, I'm a big fan of the Call of Cthulhu monsters, so I was wondering if you'd ever considered doing a similar episode using them. I know you've done your top three already, but I'm more interested to know in how you would utilise a creature outside of your wheelhouse. Yeah, and no, I think we could have some fun with that. Um, I don't know if perhaps we could use uh, the index number or the page numbers of the, uh, the Malleus Monstorum, perhaps, and, and roll randomly on there, but yeah... Yeah, I think that'd be quite an interesting one to do. Obviously, we'd have to avoid, like, deep ones and ghouls, I think. <laughs> but try and use yeah. more unusual monsters, maybe. But or, some... or, I guess, or unique ways of using those creatures. I mean, there are so many in the Malleus Monstorum. If we, you know, rolled until we got some of the more unusual ones, yeah. yeah. Like the Desh. They're a very unusual one. I think I've only seen them used once. What, what you're missing listening to this is Paul and I looking <laughs> blankly at Matt. <laughs> No, I've come across the dash, but yeah. Then let's have a quick wrap-up. Obviously, it's a bit early to give our overall impressions of the story, but yeah, as we've mentioned before, this is broken into some fairly discrete chunks. Uh, you know, the, the narrative structure in this is, I, I think, probably one of the strongest aspects of it. And the power of the writing as well, and how concise it is as... As, as you know his writing in this is so it doesn't do that thing i think that people criticize him for for the overuse of uh, you know mm. unusual adjectives and so on it's quite plain on the page writing i would say particularly well especially Mostly. for lovecraft yeah and as we said about that bit in the swamp so many of the sentences there's so many things going on in there that it really bears rereading yeah i uh, definitely agree on that front and I think also the, the, the method of storytelling, it's something that you know, I haven't necessarily seen that much of, this you know, disparate piecing together of information. I mean, there, you know, there are definitely other stories like it, like Arthur Mackin's novel of the Black Seal. But, um, yeah, this is, yeah, I, I, I find it an absolutely 
compelling way of bringing all these elements together. The only time other than this that I can see the device having been used is in the first season of Urban Gothic, Hmm. um, where you had 12 stories which were, up until that point, you thought were completely disparate, completely unrelated. But then you come to the uh, the 13th episode in in the series, and suddenly, oh shit, they are all linked. So a time back, we spoke with Sandy Peterson, original author of Call of Cthulhu, about H.P. Lovecraft for episode 100. Now, when we had him online, we decided to uh, also talk about the Call of Cthulhu story because we knew this story was coming up. And here's that interview now. We're pleased to have Sandy Peterson with us again. Hi there, Sandy. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm just dandy. All right, so we've got you on um, because we've been talking about Call of Cthulhu, the story, and clearly has a lot to do with a certain game. So one of the questions I'd like to ask you is, when I first heard about the game in, back in the 80s, I was like, the Call of what? You know, I read it, and I'm like, how do I even say this? What was it inspired you to use the name of that particular story for the game? Okay, you're not I mean, gonna, was that your decision? You're going to be disappointed in the answer. Ah, oh. I wanted to call it Nemesis. Uh huh. The original name that Chaosium gave it was Dark Worlds, and then they decided without th- that that uh, Lovecraft fans would have heard of the name Call of Cthulhu, so they should name it that. And they uh-huh. did it without any reference to what anyone else to what I said. So the name Call wow. of Cthulhu is wholly from them. And in fact, so there, so that's where it came from. I mean, I can see doing that today because Lovecraft seems like quite a big, relatively quite a big deal. But back in the early eighties, did you have the the time? I said, "Who knows what Lovecraft is, right?" But uh, what Cthulhu is? They said, "Oh no, if they know about Lovecraft, they'll like this." I think they had the same expectations I had, which were that it would be an obscure cult game that would sell a few thousand copies and then die the death in a few years. After the okay. fans had had reamed it out, but then it like spread out, and other people. Saw, I think because of the the contrarian nature, where it's different from every other role playing game, because it's not about combat mm-hmm. and progression. That what happened is that people started going into it. When I a few years ago, I was at a uh, a movie, a Lovecraft movie fest in Portland, Oregon, and they gave me a, a, an award, a Howie, a little statue of Lovecraft, <laughs> and it was the second they'd handed out, and the first went to uh, Stuart Gordon. And they oh, wow. and I got the second, and they said that the reason that we got these was because it was their opinion that the reason Lovecraft is widely known today was from two sources. One was Stuart Gordon's movies mm. that were which we featured mm-hmm. Lovecraft that kind of went through the, the 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 nerd horror audience, and the other was with my game called Cthulhu, which went through the other like the other part. So those two prongs mm. of Lovecraftian awareness made like what triggered Lovecraft being known today. And if those hadn't been there, then he would not be a meme now. So, yeah, well, in fact, I I did wonder whether it was even one stage further. The fact that out of all the Lovecraft stories that, you know, could have been chosen as, as titles for the role-playing game, that because it's the call of Cthulhu, that this probably has an awful lot to do with why Cthulhu as, as a character has become so iconic. You're probably even yeah. more so than well, that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, combined with uh, uh, Lynn, uh, Lynn Carter deciding that the Cthulhu mythos is what he should call this. Mm. Th- this, Or actually, I guess maybe the August Leth even. Because Lovecraft mm. called it Yogg-Sothothery. 
Yes. Even mm. he didn't do it, right? <laughs> so that was all part of the the thing. All those things put together. And, and yeah, LeCru is more famous partly because, although to, be, to give Stuart Gordon his due, he did not have Cthulhu in his tales. They were totally obscure Lovecraft stories, right? Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. And and what the, the title Nemesis, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, the the kind of uh, the downfall of uh, humanity or whatever. Did the name Nemesis mean something more to you? I, I liked it because it was the title of that Lovecraft's poem, you know, and oh, right. I wasn't okay. because I wasn't a huge comic fan. Now, when I every once in a while, I try to propose the word nemesis for another one of my um, games. And I'm always shouted down by my team because in their head, nemesis is, is a comic book term. But yes. in my head, mm. it's not. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that's not how I think of the word nemesis, but they do. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, and of course, yeah, the, the name was used uh, some years ago for um, a, a mashup of, um, what was it, the One Roll Engine and Unknown Armies for playing Call of Cthulhu-type games. Uh, so, so yes, yeah, it, it has actually been used since then. Maybe I'll never get to use it. So, obviously, we're talking about the story of The Call of Cthulhu. It's been used, obviously, in almost every edition of uh, The Call of Cthulhu RPG. It's been there in the text as, as an illustration of, of what Lovecraftian fiction is. Do you think, as a story, that it actually you know, offers a good structure and lots of good inspiration for gaming? And, and if so, you know, how, how do you see that working? Uh, it's, it's a really good example of using like the research stuff to find out some the some awful thing and then traveling there and meeting with it plus of course it features a pretty iconic monster so i mm. think it's useful in that regard it shows you because most of the the story there's there's not like combat or comfort i mean i guess if in a, in a story i would probably have the events like in louisiana and aboard the alert to be things that happen to the players mm. right because that would be more exciting but yes. but the fundamental we must reach you know it starts out with with this this uh crazy person having wild dreams, then you kind of move on from there. So I think in that regard, it is a strong structure for a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Um, probably Dunwich Horror is even stronger. That's kind of, that's really more the poster child for a Call of Cthulhu adventure. And also because the combats that happen in, aboard the Alert in Louisiana, they aren't the combat, the, the battles that are happening with the cops, for example, against the cultists, these are not the climactic battle of any, of any sort. They're just ways of gathering more information the important part of the of the louisiana thing is that you capture castro and he tells you the awful secrets of, of yes he gives you put you on the next stage right and then yeah, the yeah, final yeah. confrontation against cthulhu you can't do anything except panic <laughs> and that's a very lovecraftian or even call it cthulhuian thing it's like oh my gosh it's here yes um but they do, but, it does kind of drive the the boat into him um, they do. Which is, they totally drive the boat into him, and uh, which, which which does not destroy him, which is kind of the whole point yeah, of yeah. that, right? Yeah. And one of the things that people sometimes miss about the boat ramming Cthulhu is that think of this in terms of the ni- 1927. The most powerful man-made device in the world is a steamship, right? This mm-hmm. couldn't stop Cthulhu. If mm-hmm. Lovecraft had written it in 1997, it would have been a nuke. Absolutely. Because the whole point of the story is not, oh, look, a steamship can disperse him, but that a steamship can't stop him, right? The, the, our biggest thing is of no avail. And so that's that's what it's trying – that's the point of that encounter. Yes, the best you can do is buy the time to get away. Yes. 
In in terms of um, gaming, I mean, you mentioned the Dunwich Horror is a really good fit. I mean, that that seems to have more of a uh, lend itself to more of a party play kind of thing. Whereas many of his stories seem to be one protagonist. Are there any other stories that you've taken inspiration from for gaming? You know, Lovecraft's particularly stories, uh, or that you feel are a particularly good fit for. Uh, besides what I mentioned game. about Dunwich Horror, for example, or Call of Duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, like, I, I went through all the stories and combed them for references that would make useful things. One of the features of Lovecraft's story- tales, which was not useful to me that I still wanted to try to incorporate, was a lot of his tales are about something that happened in the ancestral past. You know, mm-hmm. the rats in the walls, the shadow out of time, the mountains of Mandis are all things from the distant long ago that doesn't really affect modern times. It's just it's it's arcane knowledge that affects your, you mentally, but not physically. So it makes for a weak adventure. I mean, we included the Great Race of and the old ones in the game, but the fact is that there's none of them left. Right. Those, yeah. Those those things are extinct. Um so that was a part of Lovecraft that I wasn't able to figure out how to incorporate the same way. Um, and so for those things, I, tr- I tended to, uh, I also had the idea in my head that Lovecraft wasn't just that Call of Duty wasn't just the Lovecraft game because Lovecraft tried as hard as he could to spread his lore to other authors. I was, I was bound and determined to include Frank Belknap long and Robert E. Howard mm-hmm. and all, all the other guys, not, not Robert E. Howard's Conan stuff, but his modern horror, right. That he also yeah. wrote Clark Ashton Smith and all these guys in the in the tales and their events and from there since i'm already including these things and i'm saying well you know what lovecraft loved arthur Machen's stories and he loved the stories by william Hall. i should put those in so it kind of spread to become uh you know the other characters I mean, there's never been a more perfect lovecraft investigator character than william hope hodgson's karnacki <laughs> yes right? yeah so yeah. so all of that kind of played together in how in my head call of cthulhu was supposed to be um, I don't know how well I pulled it off, but that was that was what was going on in my mind, that I would have no problem with The Great God Pan, for example, by Martha Mockin being a, 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 a plot line. Well, I, th- I think the number of different directions that, that you know, writers and keepers over the years have pushed things in is testimony to the fact that that really does work. Yes, yes. And Lovecraft, it's not like Lovecraft had, had this rigid structure over... Mm overarching his stories that he tried to follow in every show. He just did whatever he wanted to do with the stories. And if, if that incorporated, uh, like ghosts, I mean, he had, he totally has stories with ghosts, but his ghosts are kind of weird. Sandy, I mean, we've um, had Cthulhu Wars a couple of years back, which was a massively successful board game using the, the Cthulhu figures, uh, fighting each other for dominion of the whole world. Um, what are you working on now? Well, I have uh, sort of two and a half active games I'm working on now. My next big release is Planet Apocalypse, which is sort of a cross uh, between Fury Road and Doom in that you are post-apocalypse heroes fighting against an invasion of demons that are trying to destroy the world. Recent oh, wow. art from Keith Thompson, who uh, is a well-known game and movie artist. Um mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty amazing stuff. You can there's uh, there's some images of it scattered around online, but in general, it's uh, it's you know it's co-op. You're trying to stop the demons. They're pouring through a, a gate, and you have to get 
through the hordes of demons to the demon lord and and kill him. And there's multiple demon lords you can you can face. All the characters are very asymmetrical. So that's one of the things I'm working on. Um, uh, another is actually a collaboration with my son. Uh, uh, sort of his first game as as a main author, but I'm doing a lot of work on it. It's called Evil High Priest. And oh. in this game, you are a priest of Cthulhu or Shavnigarath or some other uh, great old one. And so are uh-huh. the other players. They're, you're all priests of the same great old one. And you're trying to release your great old one from the, the elder signs that constrain him. And when you shatter all the elder signs and he wakes up, then he, or it, I guess, picks which priest did the most to release it. And then that guy <laughs> become the high priest. Anyway. It's kind of a mythos version of The Apprentice, right? <laughs> sort of, yeah. I mean, really, it's, <laughs> you know, and it's a worker place in which your cultists are the workers, and you're sending them out to to do rituals and to, and to harvest money and to work on driving buses and stuff and to unleash elder signs and to fight the other guys and you summon monsters. And, and occasionally your guys get caught and sent back to the asylum where they belong, and you have to break them out again. And uh, okay. one of the, the cool things about the game is that each cult has a completely different cult board. So, like, when you're working with – if you're priests of Cthulhu, then there's a sh- then there's the cult Shoggoth that everyone wants to control, but only one guy can control at a time. Oh, and the deep ones are giving you rewards. But if you're playing uh, uh, the Black Goat, then there's t- – tons of monsters are constantly being being appear- appeared out of nowhere, and you have to quick go out and gather them up and add them to your, to your, to your herd. You know, if you're playing uh, – Opener of the way, then your cultists tend to mutate into horrible monsters and go off and do their own thing, and you have to try to <laughs> figure out some way of getting them back or using their new powers. And so every every faction is is different. Every time you play it, you put on a new cult board and it's something different. So that's that game. It sounds like there's quite a lot of scope for comedy in that. I don't know if that's uh, yes, intentional. Yes, I know because you're, you're dealing with these cultists, and you, and yeah. you literally like they're crazy, right? So there's problems yeah. with with they have they have problems. And you're dealing with that, and you're also trying to do your thing, and the other players are trying to get, and you know, there's, it, yes, it's, it is very much, a, it's not a comedy game, because you, ultimately mm. you're trying to release Cthulhu to eat everyone in the world, but uh, but it's also not, well, you've played uh, Cthulhu Wars, right? Sure, I mean, sure. The topic is relentlessly grim, and we held to that all through it, but when you're actually playing it, people are having fun. They're lighthearted, they're laughing at each other, they're, 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 they're smack talking, it's, I think this <laughs> Right, so that's evil high priest is is the same way. The planet apocalypse and evil high priest are are planned for this for a fall um, campaign, and then mm-hmm. next year is a uh, a huge forex space game I'm doing, which the name is not yet um, trademarked, um, but in which you play various alien races battling over a star cluster. Um, with diplomacy and uh, and combat and and colonization all involved and tech trees and stuff. So oh, nice! Yeah, and and, cool. and and on the RPG front, I mean, obviously you've done that uh, that book that's in development at the moment with Mike Mason, uh, Tales of Sandy Peterson. Um, yes, uh, yes, and I've got the uh, the Pathfinder thing that we're doing, uh, which mm. uh, I'm quite proud of because the the part, now I don't know anything about Pathfinder except that it's you know a role-playing game, but I do know about the Cthulhu mythos. So I've put new things and ideas in there for the Cthulhu mythos. So for example, I've uh, explained how the non-Euclidean aspect affects Haster and these various gods and how they're nasty. And um, Nice. So do you see yourself doing more RPG stuff down the line? Every time I've done it over the last little while, I've kind of been dragged into a kicking and screaming. So I guess that will continue, huh. but I feel pretty fulfilled doing uh, the board game stuff. So, 
Right. Um, barring more people saying, now you must do... Well, I like a lot of people wanted me to do a Sandy Peters Cthulhu Mythos for D&D, which... You know, I, I don't play D&D, I play RuneQuest and, and Call of Cthulhu, right? But hmm. but since I've already written all the background stuff for the Pathfinder, I see no reason why I wouldn't release that for D&D, you know? I just, yeah. I wouldn't ever do any work on it. It'd be, I guess that sounds lazy, but, you know. <laughs> Marvelous. Okay, well, that wraps up our interview with Sandy. So I'd like to say a big thanks to Sandy Peterson. Thank you, Sandy. You're most welcome, and we'll put links to um, some of the products that you mentioned on the show notes. So that's it for this first part of our exploration of the Call of Cthulhu. Join us next time, friends, when we dive into the madness from the sea. So until then, it's a good night from me. It's cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.